So let's go ahead and uh, open our Bibles. Let me see all those Bibles. Anybody got a Bible tonight? Yeah, we got 10 of you guys. <laughs> it's always good when people put their hand up. That's great. I love it. So make sure you bring your Bibles. We're in a sermon series called Dr. Luke, and it's basically a verse-by-verse study all the way through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, it's been fun to kind of do this. We're in part six tonight, and it's called The Forerunner. And um, it's, it's been a moment. Uh, we've actually really been in this for about, what, two and a half months now. And uh, even before I want to start out, I, I just I had this nerd moment as I was preparing my sermon, or a geek moment. And, and so I figured I'll share it with you guys. It's really more of a preacher's moment, and you will see it here in just a moment. Um, we've done six weeks, and... It was interesting to me that the first sermon that we did, or the first three, all covered chapter one of Luke. The second chapter took us two weeks, and tonight what I'm going to attempt is to do it all in one week. So that's going to be it. See, now the AC is on, everybody's going to be watching. That's just terrible. So here it is. So do you guys see the nerd moment there? Yeah. Isn't that awesome? May have to explain it to Mackenzie. Ah, <laughs> see, I, I know, I know. But see, you would have never known, so I figured I have to tell you to make sure that you guys see this. See, this is the kind of stuff that I think about, and my brain is just really weird. So we're going to actually attempt to cover 38 verses tonight in our 25 minutes. So it's going to be crazy. It's going to be a lot, of, uh, a lot of stuff to cover. So turn to your neighbor and tell them he's going to teach tonight. And you're going to have to pay attention. Good. Are you guys ready? We're going to actually go ahead and really do this. Actually, I'm going to teach for about, um, I'm going to teach all the way through about 22 verses, and then we're going to skip some verses. And you will know why when we get to it. I won't tell you now, and now you guys are all turning around and checking it out. But you will see why we skip them, and it's, it's a very, very good reason. Now, the last few weeks, we've been focusing on John and Jesus, and we've really focused on their childhood. We did two chapters on their birth and what happened in their childhood. Now we're jumping into chapter number three, and we're about to see them as grown men. And again, John and Jesus obviously are cousins, and here we're going to dive right in. One of them has a ministry already going on, and he got a preaching ministry. The other one is about to start his ministry and has almost a kind of ordination going on, as we'll see here in just a moment. So I want to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to dive in and do 38 verses in the time that we have tonight. Heavenly Father, we just pray right now that you would come in this place. Holy Spirit, I declare my dependence upon you. I need you to deliver this word, and I ask that you would speak to us tonight. Change our lives. Speak to us. Do what only you can do. And God, we want to be more in love with you by the end of the sermon. We want to just be ready to just do whatever you've called us to do. So do this tonight. We ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Two opening thoughts as we dive into verse 1. First one is this. Luke is about to, as we will see in just a second, taking this crazy thing of showing us six different people and giving us all these references for a single reason. I'll show that to you guys in just a second. So you can kind of underline and look for the six references of people because he's telling us all kinds of stuff in just a moment. And the second thing that we will see right from the beginning is that this is almost the last time we hear about John in this chapter. There's one more time that we hear about him, which is in chapter 7. And Luke is making this whole thing of, okay, we're going to focus on John a little bit more, and then really everything else is going to be about Jesus. So for the rest of the Gospel of Luke, besides chapter 7, everything from here on out will be about Jesus, and John is kind of on the back burner. As a matter of fact, he actually dies, as we'll find out here in just a moment. In verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, 
Caesar. Now, a few weeks ago, there was a different Caesar, and his name was Augustus. Do you guys remember that? He was the first Roman emperor, and he actually started the Roman Empire. And this is the second guy, the one that succeeded him, and he came to the throne, or through, you know, the, to be the emperor, at around 14 AD. And Luke is telling us here, this is the 15th year, so now we actually know exactly what year it is, which would be? 15 AD. No. 14 plus 15. 32? What is this? It's 29. It's 29 AD. So we know exactly right now what is going on. Math is not our strong suit. AD 29. So it works for me. And uh, again, we find out it's Tiberius Caesar's, and then he goes to all these other people, and he talks about when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Tetrarch actually means here he was a ruler over a fourth part of the region. What happened was that Herod the guy that was trying to kill Jesus a couple of chapters ago, he was the one that was in charge back then, and then he died, and he basically divided his kingdom into four different regions. And here we read of all these people that took over those four different regions. And then in verse 2, we read this. We hear about the, the Roman stuff, and now we actually go into the Jewish um, concept here, or the Jewish uh, thing that's going on, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And if you know anything about Jewish history and the way this whole priesthood thing is supposed to go is that you are actually not supposed to have two high priests. You're supposed to have only one. So how come we have two here? They had different ideas. There was a split in the church. That would be a good one right there. They didn't really have a church and there was no split. So what is going on? Is Luke wrong? I mean, is Luke just making this up, and is Luke as a historian actually failing? No, he's not. What happened is that we have these two guys, and let me explain to you who those are. Annas actually reigned as a high priest, which means he was the civil and the religious head of the, of the uh, nation, and he reigned from 7 AD to 14 AD. And then his son-in-law, which is Caiaphas, he actually took over, and he got the title of the high priest, but he never really got all the influence and the power. It's almost like Anna stepped down and said, hey, I'll make you the high priest, or you'll be the high priest, but I'll still rule in the background. So what Luke is saying here is that, hey, we all know that Caiaphas is really the high priest, but we all know really who is in charge, which is Annas, his father-in-law. So this is why he's saying this here, which is interesting because there's a leadership lesson to be learned here, and that is this. The point leader is not always the most powerful person in the room. Let me say this again. The point leader is not always the most powerful person in the room. What does that mean? That means the guy that's doing all the talking, the guy that's in charge, is not necessarily the most powerful person. See, leadership is defined as influence. And sometimes people that are not necessarily the ones that are the point leader have actually more influence. And how does this apply to us? Have you ever heard someone say, man, I can't do anything about this because I'm not the leader? Right? Well, I can't change anything that I'm not in charge. That's not true. You can change a lot of things by not being in charge. Because leadership, as most leadership experts will tell you, is the finest influence. And you can influence people by not being in charge. It's not a problem. Jason can have, as a matter of fact, if he could potentially have more influence than like maybe one of us as pastors. Because influence is defined as leadership, and leadership is based on relational stuff. So does that make sense to you guys? You could actually have more influence than the point leader, which is exactly what we're seeing here, that uh, Caiaphas was the point leader, but Annas really was the one that had all the influence. And then it says this, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. So here we meet John again. We pick it up here in verse 2, and actually we're picking up the story from chapter 1, verse 80, where we kind of left John because the last chapter was really all about Jesus. And then it says this, John, he went into all the country around the Jordan, 
preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John, he always is a preacher. He has his ministry already established, and he's going around preaching a baptism of repentance, which doesn't strike us funny at all, right? I mean, it's not a big deal. Well, it's interesting because for the Jews, this must have been really weird because he was preaching to the Jews and telling them, hey, by the way, you need to repent and be baptized. The Jews didn't get baptized. The people that got baptized were the ones that actually wanted to join the Jewish nation, and they were going to be God-fearing uh, you know, Gentiles, but the Jews did not get baptized. So John is almost starting a paradigm shift here and saying, hey, by the way, everything is going to shift here. Everything is going to change, and everybody needs to get baptized. The word repentance actually means a change of mind, and I want you guys to write this into your hand. It's a change of mind. When you repent, you change your mind. There's a change that's going on. Really, if you think about it, most of you guys, you are Christians, you're followers of Christ, and really when you repented, something changed in you, and, and your thought process started changing, didn't it? And all of a sudden, you believe in your values. Everything started changing, and it was more based, or it was totally based, or it's supposed to be totally based on the Word of God. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight path for him. Now, the sermon tonight is called Forerunner, and John very clearly here is the forerunner that paved the way for Jesus' first coming. How many of you guys know that Jesus is coming back for a second time? Right? So what do you guys think? Would it be logical to say if Jesus had a forerunner the first time around, he would have a forerunner the second time around? Maybe? What do you guys think? Yeah? Could be? Could it be that he wouldn't even have one forerunner, but maybe lots of forerunners? Actually, it's very biblical. I'm not just making this up, just in case you're wondering. The Bible talks about that Jesus will not return till the gospel has been preached to all nations, all tribes, and all people group. That's when Jesus will return for the second time. And you know what's going to need to happen for that to be able to happen? Is that he needs forerunners, and forerunners need to be able to preach the gospel. Could it be that just like John the Baptist was a forerunner, you guys are supposed to be forerunners? Could it be that you guys are supposed to preach and take the gospel everywhere? And if you do, and when you do, you actually hasten the coming of Christ. Does that make sense? The Bible is very clear about that. He will not come back unless every single tribe and nation will have heard the gospel. Many of you guys were here last week, and you heard about Paul and how Paul is going out and doing missionary work, and he's preaching to people that have never heard the gospel. There's still a lot of people out there that have not heard the gospel. We, America, is saturated with the gospel. We can turn on any television, you know, like, and we, I mean, it's just everywhere. You can go online, you can listen to all the preachers, and it's everywhere. But there's lots of people out there that do not know the gospel, and I believe it's up to us as forerunners to bring the gospel to those out there. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Now, John is about to go into a sermon, and he's about to start preaching. Have you guys ever heard a preacher where, I mean, he just was so into it, so excited, and then he started calling people out, and it was crazy? Have you ever heard a sermon like that? Well, John is about to do that right here and right now. It is going to be crazy the way that he is going to teach and preach to his audience. So check this out. In verse 7, it says this, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. In other words, they wanted to be baptized. They heard him preach, and they wanted to do what he told them to do. And then he says this, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Have you ever been called names? I mean like names, like bad kind of names? Some of you guys have? Like John is calling them some names here. He really is. I mean, this is tough 
I mean, I don't know whether you know this or not, but the, the, the picture that they would have in their mind is that there's some vipers that literally the mother, when, they have, when she has children inside of her, the kids eat their way out of their mom's stomach to come out. In other words, they kill the mom. And he's saying, hey, you brood of vipers. I don't know what he's calling them, but he's calling them some names right there. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty bad, right? So this is like his opening sermon, his opening statement. And he says this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And, you know, if, if you were in junior high, you might be thinking, what, what is he calling me to be a farmer? What is he saying here? But, no, what he's really saying is, I want you to repent, and your repentance will have fruit, and it will show in your lifestyle. And by the way, if you have repented, it's really not enough. You need to have fruit. That's what he's saying. I mean, he's really preaching hard right now. And he says this, And by the way, if you have any excuses, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. In other words, he's saying, if you put this in our term, in, in our language, if you think that you're a Christian, that your parents were Christians, and that's good enough for you, if you think you're a second, third, fourth, fifth generation that's going to save you, you are totally mistaken. You need to repent, and you have fruit of repentance. If you don't have it, forget it. You're going to hell. That's what he's saying right here. And then in case you still haven't gotten the, the point, the axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now he's going saying, hey, by the way, you are a tree, and if you are a bad tree, and if you're not bringing any fruit, you're going to be burned. Again, lingo for us would be, hey, the tree is you. If you are not bearing the fruit, you're going to hell. You're not going to heaven. I mean, he's really preaching a hardcore message here. And look at the response of the people. The response of the people is, what should we do then? The crowd asked. Okay, that struck me as a little funny. Isn't that weird? I mean, he's really preaching this hard message, and their response is, what should we do? Which this phrase, what should we do then, Luke uses that over and over, and we'll see it two more times here in just a second. And John answers them and says, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Now he's going practical on them and saying, this is how you should show your fruit. If you have extra, give some away. You should be helpful. You should be generous. The tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said, teacher, what should we do? And his response was, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And what you may not know is that the way the tax collecting uh, stuff worked back in the day was that Rome obviously wanted their taxes, and so they would go into these regions, and they would put people in charge, and they would give the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder. So in other words, there was this bidding contest going on, Whoever won it would pay Rome, and then they in return would be responsible to collect the taxes for Rome, and on top of that, more so they could make their profit. And Rome didn't tell them how much more they could take that was up to the tax collectors, which is why they went overboard, collected all the taxes, and that's why everybody hated them. So when you read anything about tax collectors in the Bible, they were the most hated people in there, and a lot of them were actually Jews, so again, they were hated, and he's telling them, hey, be honest. Be people of integrity. Don't collect more than you ought to. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Be content. Be humble. Don't do anything. Don't cheat. In other words, what he's really saying, which is really cool here, is that you, you should be people where people can see that you're a Christian. Not because you talk about being a Christian, but because you walk it. Some of us, we're really good about talking of how we are Christians and what we should do. Yet, if we were to be quiet completely and they would just look at our lives, it would never show. And if that's the case, that's not the way it's, it's supposed to be. 
right? They should be able to tell. You should be able to be at your job, at your school, and not say a word, and they should know that person is different because of the conduct that they have, because of the way that they carry them. And um, I find this really interesting that John is not saying, by the way, leave your job. He's just saying, no, be the best that you can be in your job and be, um, be honest, be humble, give away. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might be possibly the Christ. Again, the Jews had been waiting for the Messiah for a long time, and here comes John. He's preaching this new message. Everything is different. They're like, man, could he be the Messiah? Could he be the Christ? And John, who has a moment here where he could take the glory for himself, really quickly points as the forerunner to Jesus. And he says, as John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. By the way, this was the task of a slave. So he is not just saying, hey, I'm, I'm the forerunner. He's saying, I'm the lowest of the lowest. I'm not even worthy to do this for him. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winning fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He almost goes back into his sermon right there and kind of refers back to be like, hey, by the way, if you don't have the repentance, it's just another example, you'll be burned in fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when, and this is where he's picking up his sermon just a little bit, he's kind of like feeling good about himself and he's going one step further. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up, John up in prison. Now, I read this really fast on purpose because I wanted to see whether you guys would catch this, but what was going on here? John is a preacher of righteousness. He's a very plain guy, but he's very blunt in what he does, and he realizes, you know what? Herod is doing some stuff that he shouldn't be doing. Basically, he has his brother's sister, who was also his niece, because there was a lot of family drama going on. It's kind of weird and sick. And he's saying, by the way, you're wrong. And then he gets locked up in prison. And if you guys know this story, and we'll find this out in chapter 7, he gets killed for it. So John is on a roll here, but then all of a sudden, he gets locked up in prison, which is an interesting thing, because have you ever noticed that we do have the truth, and when we speak the truth, we often get in trouble? See, when you really get serious with God and when you produce fruit worthy of repentance and when you start talking about truth, you're going to get in trouble, especially the day and age that we live in right now. And it's a cost that you have to count. Truth is going to cost you everything. I mean, just think about it. If we were to jump in right now into the whole debate of gay marriage, truth is going to cost you a lot isn't it? Well, I think John knew that, and John counted the cost. And I want to encourage you guys to count the cost. See, as Christians, I believe we should know what we believe and be vocal about it, yet use wisdom. When to say something, and when you do say something, you have to be able to think through the argument before you make it. You need to be careful, but you need to know what you believe. And I promise you, when you speak truth, you're going to get in trouble. As a matter of fact, I have a junior high guy that I'm kind of coaching a little bit, mentoring, and he was just reading his Bible. And the teacher, like, almost lost it on him. I mean, he was so mad at him for reading his Bible. And, you know, like, granted, he was reading it in class, so that probably wasn't a good idea. But um, he was going to take the Bible away from him. I mean, we live in a day and age where it's just crazy, isn't it? And they will tell you all the time, oh, you can't do this. You can do a lot of stuff in public school, by the way. They just tell you you can't, but you can't. You can't read your Bible. Just not in class. It's probably not a good idea. But you can read it any other time, really, that you want to read it. Um, but it's, it's an interesting point, Jim. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus actually was there, too, and he was baptized as well. 
So Jesus, he identifies with the baptism of repentance, with the baptism of John. And then we read, read this. And as he was praying, heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Which, by the way, if you ever thought of this as everybody saw it, and this was like a big, oh my gosh, what's going on? There's this dove coming down. There's a good chance that this was not visible for everybody. There's a good chance this was just John and Jesus that saw it. How, how do I know this? Well, again, I, I read some commentaries, and a lot of them are in agreement here. But you don't see any crowd reaction, do you? Now, I don't know about you, but if you were in a crowd, and everybody were to see a dove coming down and descending on someone that was being baptized, I would, like, freak out. And that would be a big deal. But you don't see that here. You just hear it because, I think, because of Jesus and John who saw it, and they pass it on to the disciples. And then this verse, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Isn't that a great verse? Isn't that nice when your dad actually tells that to you? I mean, I don't know whether you guys have a father that tells you that, but, but isn't that awesome? What, what has Jesus done so far? Has he done any miracles? Has he gone on the cross? No, nothing. All Jesus has done so far is he took care of his family because his father died. He went into the trade of his father, and he became a carpenter, and he was faithful and obedient. And then he gets baptized before he did anything else ministry-wise. And Jesus hears his father's voice. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Sometimes I feel like as Christians, we feel like we have to do these extravagant things for God to be pleased with us and for him to love us and care for us. Like, I have to win millions. I have to be like, you know, Paul to go out and, and preach the, the gospel to all these unreached people group, which is good when you do. But I think God often looks for obedience and faithfulness, not sacrifice. I'm not saying sacrifice is not important and we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying, like, obedience and faithfulness is the starting point. And that's where most of us miss it. Isn't that true? And he says, hey, I'm, I'm well pleased with you. How do I know that God loves me? Well, the Bible tells us that, right? The Bible talks about that very clearly in John 3:16, for God to love the world. So I think we all know that God loves us. But how do I know that God is pleased with me? Have you ever wondered that? You might ask that question like, okay, God, I'm, I'm doing all these things. I'm, I'm, I'm doing some of these things and some of them I'm not. Man, how do I know whether you're actually pleased with me? I think the answer actually is really simple. He's pleased with us when we're producing food worthy of the repentance, just like what John was talking about. See, your fruit that you have in your life will clearly show you whether God is going to be pleased with you or not. It's just like my kids. I love my kids all the time. But there are certain times when I'm more pleased with them than others. If they're not obeying what we put in, then obviously I may not be pleased. But if they are, then, then I may be more pleased. But I love them all the time. I think God is the same way. And another question that I have sometimes, like, how do I know that God actually delights in me? Like, he loves me, and he just loves spending time with me. And he does. He really does. Actually, I put this on there. God absolutely loves you, and he's crazy about you. And, and I think we forget this so many times. God loves you. He delights in you, and when we do what he asks us to do, he's so pleased. And I don't know about you, but I want to please my father. And again, it's not the person that wins 100 million souls that he's going to be pleased with. It's the one that's going to be faithful, and that's going to be obedient. Amen? Amen. 
Daniel Kalinda, one f a friend of mine, he said this, and I love this because sometimes we are like, okay, how, how do I know and how do I read the word and how can I hear God's voice? And I just read this the other day and I just really loved it and I wanted to put it in your sermon. So here it is. If the enemy can keep you from God's word, he can keep you from God's voice. As you read the word, sometimes you, people ask me, okay, how do I hear God's voice? Well, it's very simple. You read his word. And if you don't read his word, guess what? you probably won't hear his voice because he speaks clearly through the word. 23, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Again, at the age of 30, most Levites started their service, so here it's the same with Jesus. He starts his service. But the question that I have is, why would it take Jesus so long to get ready? That's a long time. 30 years. Anybody 30 in here? You're 30? Awesome. You age backwards. Good job. I mean, that's a long time to prepare, right? Why did it take Jesus so long? I mean, if he's God, why didn't he just go for it? I mean, why was he not ready? He was waiting for the perfect moment. That's that you bullseye right there. And the other thing is, you know what? I want to make a point here, and I think this is really important. Sometimes when it comes, especially when you feel like you're called to ministry, don't fight your preparation time. It's really important that God prepares you right, and sometimes it takes a long time. Some of us, we just take a little longer. And if Jesus took his preparation time seriously, so should we. I think this is really important. And uh, we're going to close out here. And this is uh, Luke actually going into the genealogy of Jesus. And this is where we're going to skip a lot of verses because I don't want to mispronounce a lot of names. And it's a lot of names to read. So we're just going to read verse 24 and verse 38. So, and then we're going to be done. And he was the son. So it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then it goes on all the way through. And then it says this in verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, if you know this, there's two genealogies in the Gospels. One is in Matthew and one is in Luke. Matthew actually starts his genealogy from Abraham and goes all the way to Jesus. Luke, however, does it a little bit different. He decides not to go from Abraham. He decides to go from Joseph, and he goes all the way back to God, the son of Adam, the son of God. And it's an interesting point because Matthew is writing to the Jewish people, Luke is writing to the Gentiles. And Matthew is making sure that, hey, by the way, I just want you to know that Jesus, he's part of our Jewish heritage. He's part of us, and, this is, and he's explaining all that in his gospel. And Luke is saying, hey, by the way, not just is he Jewish, but he goes all the way back to God, which means he's trying to say, hey, by the way, everybody is welcome in the gospel. It's not just the Jews, but it's the Gentiles also. And as Tony pointed out a couple of weeks ago, this is like where Luke always makes sure that he shows, hey, everybody is welcome in the gospel Of Jesus Christ. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with no more verses, which means we're done, right? And that also means that we're going to go into small groups here in a second. And what I want to do is I want to pray. I'm going to pray over us for our small groups because I got some some questions that I want you guys to process tonight, and questions that I think um, will cause for good discussion. And uh, the three questions that I want you guys to process, I'm going to put them up on the board there and read them real quick. I'm going to pray. Do you produce fruit in keeping with repentance? And I think some of you guys need to ask yourself that question. Do you just claim yourself to be a Christian, or is there fruit involved in your life? Are you a forerunner for Christ? Why or why not? I believe we're supposed to be forerunners. And as forerunners, again, we hasten the second coming of Christ. And lastly, do you know that God loves you? Why or why not? And as groups, you guys can take one of those. If you take all three, it's going to take you all night. So just take one question, discuss it, whichever one, you know, is the best for the group. And then we're going to close out from the Heavenly Father. I just pray right now that you would come in this room and that you, as we go into our small groups, 
would just take over, that the discussion would be great, and Father, that you, um, you would just help us to really understand even those three questions. Whichever question it is that we're going to be taking, I pray that you would speak through the small group leaders, through the students, that we good discussion, and God, that you would rule and reign in this place tonight, even as we're doing small groups. And we pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.